Thank you so much, church. Good morning. Welcome. So glad to have you with us. If you're uh, a member or a regular tender, thank you. Um, if you're a visitor or someone that feels like a visitor, you don't come often, uh, thank you for being here. We're excited for a word of God for you today, his people. Uh, we continue in a series called Chosen by God, where we're looking through the scriptures or how God speaks to his people through women. And we believe that there's a powerful message for all of us in the room this morning. Uh, let me pray and we'll begin. Lord God, thank you so much for your church, for people, men and women, after your own heart. Uh, Lord, we know that uh, we are, uh, all of us, sinners saved by you. All of us needing to be reformed, to be renewed, to repent a place we've fallen short. And Lord God, we pray that your love would shine through this morning, that we would encounter you again. We want to experience you this morning. In your great name we pray. And all the men and women said... Amen. Your sermon, uh, Chosen by God, week four. Your title this morning is called Called to Courageous Reform. Called to Courageous Reform. And we're telling this story. It's a bit of an abstract story to some. The story of Holda uh, in 2 Kings 22, 11 through 20. It's actually in our family ministry last week. Uh, they taught on King Josiah and Holda and about what happens when the word of God lives in the center of a community and how it transforms things. So today we get to talk about Holda, and you know, just by way of introduction, we'd ask you a, a trivia question. In the history of this city, uh, where we think, hey, we have you know pretty enlightened perspectives at the time. We know that God leads through men and women. How many, how many female mayors has this city had in the over hundred years it's been a city? Anyone venture guess? Cheater. Yes. No, you knew too. Sorry, Casey, that wasn't kind. That's amazing. We've had two. We've had two mayors. We have a current female mayor. And then our first mayor was in 1924, 1926, a woman, Bertha Ethel Knight Landis. Uh, she was the first mayor of an American major city. And, uh, you know, Seattle was on the map because this woman led the city for a couple years after years of civic activism. And then 91 years before the next female mayor. Now... As we turn towards the scriptures this morning, we, we have way bigger things on our mind than politics. Way bigger things. We want, as God's people, to encounter God through his word, the scriptures. And this is what's amazing because we get this story today about the Old Testament, how God speaks through this woman, Holda. I didn't, I'd never studied Holda. I'd read, I've read through the Bible maybe three or four times. I've, I've read this story, but it, it hasn't landed the way it's landed this week. And when, when we turn towards the scriptures, when we study the Bible, it's so important to remember that the entire Old Testament is a story of God's relationship with a particular people, the nation of Israel, his people. And in the Old Testament, over and over again, the nation of Israel encounters God and they drift away. They love God and they fail. They return to God and they drift. There's threats of extinction and then God preserves them. The story in the Old Testament is largely about men written by men because the context of the Old Testament is patriarchal. It's what was happening in world society. These are written thousands of years ago. But there's also in our scriptures, in our holy book, there's this mysterious thread woven throughout where God uses these prophetic voices of women to shape people, not for civic politics, but to encounter a, a renewal of the power of God. Like this happens in the Old Testament in Tamar and Rahab and Deborah and Esther and Hannah and Abigail and more. And then this morning it's Huldah. 
And these may seem random, but every single one of the females who pops into the narrative in the Old Testament is, a, is speaking for God in relationship with God, preserving and restoring God's people Israel. And so it seems like God is saying something in this, that in the midst of God's story, in the midst of a predominantly patriarchal culture, there's always a woman who helps leading reform. And in every case, there's God choosing both men and women to speak for him. And so when we lift up in this, in this series, when we look, lift up you know, certain characters, these females, we're lifting up God's word and God's heart for how he wants to speak to his church, his people. And so this, this woman, Holda, it, it, it's incredible. It, she's incredible. 600 BCE, she's a prophet, a prophetess. And uh, this, this incredible story is written in 2 Kings where Josiah is this king. He's a good king. And they started this massive project to redoing, to, to rebuilding the temple, the center of, of their cultural and spiritual and religious life. And they discover the scriptures. And they, they take the scriptures because they've forgotten about them. More about that in a moment. They take it not to Jeremiah, who's a prophet of the day, not to Zephaniah. They take the scriptures to this woman, Holda, and they say, what does it mean? What does it mean? So this woman, Holda, though we don't know a ton about her, she's a pivotal figure. She's a prophet. She's a link. She's a triangulation point between herself, the words of the Bible, and the world around her. And, and, and through this woman, Holda, she helps lead Israel on this massive spiritual reform. She helps change Israel's entire focus on God by her reliance on what the word of God means for the people of God. It's incredible. And so there's, there's this thing where we need to realize in some regards the church has been part of minimizing or marginalizing the voices of women. And we must repent for ways that we've distorted God's views of women. And in this way, not lived into the wholeness, not of culture, but of scripture. That's what it's about. We want to encounter the God of the universe through his scriptures. And so Holda is a lens for that. We'll, we'll talk about two characters today in equal measure. We'll talk about Josiah, the king. And we'll talk about Holda, the prophet. This man who listens to this brave woman who speaks for God. And our big idea is simply this. That the road back to flourishing as people of God is to repent and reform and renew our commitment to God. Because when we really want to change, when we want real reformation... We'll, we'll need to hear God speaking and we'll need that courage to put that word of God to, to action in our life. So let's look at this first point of your outline. The word is repent. And when we think about repent, I basically want to give you this question. To repent is to ask the question, what have we been missing without God at the center of our lives? What have we been missing? In 2 Kings uh, 22, verse 8, you know, they, the context is they're rebuilding the temple they're rebuilding. They've collected money. They've hired people. Uh, you know, there's all this work going on. And in the midst of that, uh, you know, this, this time of excitement, this time of newness, the time, of, hey, there, there's prosperity in the land. There's a young king, Josiah, but there's, there's a goodness. And it's like, hey, we're going to do the right thing. We're going to rebuild the temple. And in the midst of that, they discover the scriptures. The, 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 verse 8 of 2 Kings 22, Hilkiah says, I found the book of the law in the temple of the Lord. Likely meaning I found the first five books of the Bible. I found the Pentateuch. I found the scriptures. 
subtext because we forgot about them. Because we forgot about them. It's incredible. It's like we're rebuilding the temple and they're like, oh my gosh, we've got the land, we've got the title, we've got the building project, we've collected the money. We've got this collective idea that we're probably God's people trying our best. What's missing? What's missing is, is the word of God that's literally hiding in the temple. You know, you just think, blow the dust off. It's like, what is this? It's God's word. The nation of Israel has literally forgotten about it. And it's easy to be like, oh, those fools. You know, who does that? That's ridiculous. Who, who forgets to open their Bible to the point that even dust accumulates on it? Oh, yeah, it's, it's been a while, right? Because we get, we get busy and we know the word of God. You know, it's like we kind of have God's word in us. So, you know, like do we open the Bible or do we even like open an app? Or like I've heard a message about it, but oh, you mean actually like literally opening God's word as his people. That we're supposed to be people of, of the word of God speaking to us through his word. It's been a while. And so this amazing thing happens in the context of 2 Kings 22 because Josiah, who's this good king, he says, pause the rebuilding effort. Like, I know we've got contractors lined up and we all know how hard it is to keep that momentum going, right? And he's like, no, no, no. Like, what do we do with this? And what Josiah does, they come, they read the Bible to him. And 2 Kings 22, verse 11, when the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his robe. He literally grabbed a shirt and ripped it in half. And I was going to like wear a shirt today and then for like visual, like rip it off. And I was like, nah, none of us really need that. But like, you know, this is Josiah. He's, he's like, I, I'm, I'm sorry, God. Because the, to tear the robe in Old Testament was, it was to repent. To say, I am sorry. Tear me open, God. Open my heart to you. Open my mind to you. I'm sorry for ways that I've moved on in my life, even building good things without your word actually being opened in my heart. And he tears robes. And this is still a thing in Jewish culture. Deep repentance, tear the robe. It means it's this, this symbolic thing of saying, God, I, I've forgotten to put you in the center of my life. I've missed it. I've been missing you, God. I've missed you. In the end of Deuteronomy, at the end of the Pentateuch, Deuteronomy 30, there's in the law, God says this, this day I call the heavens and the earth as witnesses against you that I've set before you in the scriptures, says God. This is Deuteronomy 30. I've set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Now choose life so that you and your children will live and you may love the Lord your God. And listen to his voice and hold fast to him, for the Lord is your life. And he'll give you many years in the land he swore to give your fathers Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. What's the word about? It's about life and life abundantly, as Jesus said. And we read the scriptures not to be aligned with what we already think or, or to, to check some box of like, well, I guess I'm going to read the scriptures. We open the scriptures to have our lives revealed and shaped. Because we need God's word to shape us. We drift. You know, we look at the nation of Israel. If you study 1 Kings and 2 Kings, it's this almost monotonous, you know, highs and lows of kings worshiping God and drifting away from God. And worshiping God and drifting away from God. But from the very beginning, since David, who we know even has his own failures, but he confesses sin in such a way that at the end of David's life, David says, I am fully restored. God, you made me a man after your own heart. He's fully restored. 
Like that's, when we repent sin, God restores us and renews us. None of us need to be perfect. No, we need to see the gaps in who God is calling us to be in the way in which we live. And then when we confess that and align our lives to the scriptures, God says, I'll renew you and make you new. But starting after David, his son Solomon, he started to drift. Solomon did a lot of good things, but he had a thousand wives. And he started to worship in what the scriptures call high places outside of the temple. Little insignificant things. Little insignificant idols that start cropping up in, in some of his wife's place. And Solomon doesn't really repent for any of that. And it starts this drift. And so often when we miss God's best in our life, it's not in a cataclysmic decision. Though there are some of those in the room. Most of the time it's the slow, ongoing drift from the scriptures, from obedience to God from confessing sin, from allowing systemic narratives of sin and oppression and sexism and racism to coexist in our lives. And and when we accommodate that kind of sin, we start missing God's best. We drift. And so what does it mean to repent? It says that when we see places in our life where we've drifted from obedience to God, when we've made allegiances with sin, when we've become comfortable with our own pride, We have allowance of sinful habits. God says, stop the drift and repent. Or what God actually says is, I love you too much to leave you in your sin. It's not about me, the dissatisfied judge. God says, I love you too much to let you throw your life away, drifting away from me. And so God wants to hear, he wants you to hear him and encounter him this morning. God loves you too much. To see you throw your life away in sinful ways. And so when we see that gap, we're called to repent. And the scriptures are this this highlight reel of God's love for us. 2 Timothy 3.16 reminds that all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training. And so the reminder, church, is we can't hear from God without understanding the Bible. The Bible will often be the mouthpiece of how God wants to speak to us. We're all saying, God, just speak to me. And God's like, I have. It's called the Bible. Like, just will you read about my word for your life and the story of my people and and my unfailing love? It's all there. You're not going to be legalistic by reading the word. Just be reminded of my great love for you and the danger when you drift. We, we all want to hear God's voice. God's saying, I'm speaking to you in the scriptures. So encounter me again. And when we've encountered the dissonance between how we're living and God's best, we're not going to hide. We're not going to retreat. We're not going to become bitter. God says, just repent and put my word back in the center of your life. We think of a Bible teacher who changed the world. You know, there's a lot of different men and women we could highlight But there's a woman who this week, as I prepared for this message, really stood out. We spoke about her before, but her story is incredible. Her name is Henrietta Mears. She was a Sunday school teacher at First Presbyterian Hollywood in California. She she wrote passionately about Sunday school's power to teach the Bible. And she honestly believed if we just teach the Bible to the next generation, the world will change. Well, this was a message that shaped their culture. They had over 4,200 kids coming a week to church at First Pres Hollywood. Now, we think 200 kids a week is pretty good. Imagine 4,200 next Sunday. We're going to need a few more teachers. I'm going to need to see some of you after service. Like, it's incredible. And she did it not with, like, fancy programs and bouncy houses. She did it with the scriptures. 
She, she, she opened the Bible, and, and she changed the world. Like little boys that came through her class and little girls. In this day and age, when she taught in the 40s, 50s, 60s, it was mostly men that went into public ministry. She, she impacted some pretty significant names. There's a little boy named Billy, last name of Graham. Maybe you've heard of him. Another little boy named Bill, last name of Bright, started Campus Crusade. Another little boy named Jimmy, last name of Rayburn, started Young Life. Uh, another, another little guy named Lewis Evans, who started Bel Air Presbyterian, that then went on to influence the faith of both Ronald Reagan and Dale Bruner. Dale Bruner? Yeah, he wrote the most kind of landmark uh, commentaries on both Matthew and John. And he's also my Bible teacher at Whitworth University. And he would get up in January of my sophomore year when I was just saying, God, open me up. I want to I repent from places I've drifted from your life. And Dale Bruner would teach the scriptures from memory. Matthew 17, he said. And then he would repeat word for word the Bible. And then teach what it meant. And when you hear the scriptures taught in such a way, it changes you. So I am changed by a man named Dale who was shaped by a man named Lewis, who was shaped by a woman named Henrietta. And so in a way, this is, you are the legacy of this woman's Sunday school teaching all around the scriptures. It's amazing. So when we realize that God is calling men and women to teach and lead from his scriptures to more obedience, we repent. And then secondly, we reform. We ask this question of who do, who do I listen to? Who's shaping me? Who's asking me hard questions? Who's asking me about the role of scripture in my life? Who's asking me about my worship of God? We have to ask this question of getting new places of revelation from the scriptures that we're listening to men and women who can speak for God and what the Bible is saying. That was what Holder was able to do. Jeremiah was largely ignored during his ministry. We don't know why. We don't know why Josiah skipped Zephaniah or Jeremiah, but what we do know is he walked in the new court of Jerusalem and he found this woman, Holder, who was a prophetess, and he said, show us what the Bible means. And then she just gave him this word. It was a word based out of relationship because she had intimacy with God. If you want to have influence into other people's lives, have intimacy with Jesus. Because as you have intimacy with Jesus, now you have influence into your marriage or into your dating life, into your children or into your, into your workplace. Because intimacy with Christ becomes influence in the world that desperately needs his influence. And so Holda has this impact of God in her life, and she has two words for Jeremiah. First, I'm sorry, for, for Josiah. First, she says, you know, the nation of Judah, of Israel, you, you've turned away, and there'll be repercussions for sin. She kind of talks about that in verse 16, 17. And then she gives a second word to Josiah, that because you've been obedient, because you've repented, God will allow you to die in peace. But there is trouble coming, Josiah's warned, because of consequences of sin. And so she just, she kind of puts into play that if the stuff the Bible teaches doesn't eventuate in our lives as justice for the oppressed, as fair treatment of the alien, as, as caretaking of other people, if we're not, if our gospel isn't making us more full of his love and more obedient to the scriptures, God's saying, I'm going to call you to account. And so I want you to know me and I will speak to you I will speak to you. She says three times in her message there in verse 15 through 20. She says, this is what the Lord says. This is what the Lord says. This is what the Lord says. And she speaks and Josiah listens. This is important. We have a long way to go, church, till we're at a place of equality where men and women can speak from God's scripture of what he wants to say to us. There's numerous ways that we've 
At times at the church, we've been part of perpetuating ways where women feel silenced and discriminated against and judged. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable to me, but the rates of domestic violence are the same inside the church as outside the church. So that means we're raising up Christians who understand with their head that God calls men and women to love him, but don't act that way. And as we talk a great deal that, that the world needs more than just what you think about, it needs what, how you behave. Oftentimes, the church has been part of missing God's best, what Paul calls in Galatians 3, that there's neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor male or female. You are one in Christ Jesus. And so in Christ Jesus, we tear down the dividing wall. We, we're, we try not to divide with our theology or divide with sexism or divide with the marginalization. We want Christ to make us all like him, tearing down the dividing wall. The church getting an opportunity to lead out on this. Not because culture says it's appropriate, but because in the scripture, God used women to teach his people obedience. And so this is easy, frankly, for me as a white male to talk about but I don't know what it's like to be discriminated at at the hands of another. I just haven't experienced that a whole lot. I'll confess to you. And so I wanted you to get the opportunity to hear from someone's personal story about a time in which they uh, were empowered by God's word to speak on God's behalf or, or discriminated where because being a woman, they were not allowed to speak out and how that impacted them. So I've asked my wife to come up and share a little bit of her story. Ladies and gentlemen, Heather Sun, give her a round of applause. Thank you. Yeah, will you just tell us a little bit about your story, about people in the church both empowering you that you had a voice to share, and then have you ever faced times, seasons of discrimination where you thought, oh, gosh, there's a woman, I guess I shouldn't speak, and how that impact you? Yeah, thanks for, thanks for inviting me to speak. Um, one of the things that Scott and I have the privilege of doing is a lot of relationship seminars together. And one of the things we do at our relationship seminars is we ask people to think about a person in their lives who made them feel seen or known, validated a gift or a skill in them. And in doing so, it's a really neat time of sharing amongst a couple. Um, for me, one of the stories I often share is the story of Aaron McMurray. Aaron McMurray was the area director for Young Life in Spokane when I was at Whitworth College. I went through a year of training under Aaron's leadership and then uh, interview process and then was commissioned and called into Young Life ministry and went out to share the gospel with high school kids and middle school kids in Spokane. Started a new ministry in Spokane Valley, was a part of that process, and it was a wonderful time in life. Um, a few years into that ministry, Aaron pulled me aside and said, Heather, I think that you would be a great speaker for All City Club. Now, All City Club brought together nine high schools across Spokane, and they gathered in downtown with about four to 500 kids. So Aaron asking me to speak at this terrified me. <laughs> I had given some, some talks about Christ to 20 to 30 to maybe 50 on a good night. But this was huge, and, and, and I didn't feel qualified. I felt insecure about that. I wasn't sure. And so I bravely said yes. But as I prepared for that and as I was getting ready, oh, my gosh, I was scared. I was nervous. I'm sure some of you can relate to times when you've been asked to step out in unique ways. And as I prepared, the voice of Aaron McMurray stayed with me. And when I would feel that insecurity, I would think, oh, but Aaron McMurray thinks I can do it. So I think I can do it. 
And so that really got me, you know, to step out further into ministry, into that call. And I will tell you, to this day, I've given hundreds of presentations. I've spoken and I've taught at universities. And I will tell you that oftentimes when I start to feel nervous, I will think, Aaron McMurray thinks I can do it. And it'll get me through. And that's the power of somebody's voice who speaks into your life. And that is a gift. A few years after graduating, one year after graduating from Whitworth, I was the youth pastor at um, Free Methodist Church that my parents attended. And in my role as youth pastor, we got together with some other pastors in the area, and we were going to do somewhat similar to an all-city club. We were going to do an event with a Nazarene church and a non-denominational church and a a Lutheran church, a New Year's Eve all-nighter. And it was awesome because at the time it said, we need to be about unity It isn't about our different denominations. We need to come together. So really exciting to gather with these youth pastors. Joe from the non-denominational church, it was fun to be with him because that's where I accepted Christ as a kid. That's where I had grown up. And then there was Aaron from the Nazarene church and Brad from the Lutheran church. And we're brainstorming and we're talking and there's a lot of energy around the table as we're sitting in the Sherry's in Spokane Valley dreaming big for these kids. And as we talked and as we shared and we came up with our plans, um, it came time to talk about the message. Who was going to give the message and what was the message going to be? And as we kind of sat silently, I had the burn of the Holy Spirit. And my heart started to pound. And I knew that he had given me a message to give. And I bravely spoke up after nobody said anything for a while. And I said, I think I have a message here. And, and I'd love to share with these kids. I've been working with Young Life kids and these high school kids New Year's Eve, that they are a new creation in Christ. And I know that they carry the burden of their sins and the hard things they've gone through. And I would love to share this message of grace and of goodness. And I shared that passionately. And I was met with silence. And so much so that they weren't even looking at me anymore. I couldn't even make eye contact as I kind of put this idea out there. And I was so confused. And so I sat there for a minute and I said, well, and I'd share this story, and, and this is what I'm excited about, and kind of looking for some response, and I got none. And it was awkward, and it was difficult, and embarrassing. And as we sat in silence for a few minutes, Joe eventually looked up and he said, Hey, Brad, you're really good at giving messages. Hey, do you think you could come up with something? Oh, yeah, 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 definitely. I could do that. And Aaron said, Yeah, yeah, that would be great. Brad, you do that. That would be great. He didn't have an idea. Nothing came up. But they all decided pretty quickly that he was the one to give the message. And so I felt humiliated. I felt embarrassed. I felt ashamed. I felt confused. Like, did I just do something wrong? Am I, am I sinning here by being a woman in this ministry role? And it was just kind of quiet for a while. And as we continued to plan, you know, the I didn't say much the rest of the time, and they came up with ideas, and they said, oh, the game, and who, hey, Heather, you, you, you do Young Life, why don't you do the game? Sure, I'll do the game. But that was embarrassing, and that felt hard, and I left that restaurant feeling like maybe this call to ministry was wrong, and maybe what I was doing by sharing passionately my love of Christ for kids was bad. And that was so confusing as a young adult seeking to live into Christ's call for my life. And I held that even though I had applied to the MDiv program at Fuller Seminary and I was on my way. But throughout my training at Fuller in the Masters of Divinity, the question held on to me. Is this bad? 
are you sinful if you're going to go into this career? And I ultimately decided I don't want to do that. I don't want to go into a career where I have to look into the faces of people who think I am a sinner for speaking on behalf of Christ. And so I chose a different path, and God has absolutely been with me in that. And I have no doubt that my calling to marriage and family therapy is what I'm created to do. But there's times I wonder, maybe if Scott and I continue to do ministry together, what our church would be like and what our ministry together would look like. And I hold on to this today. I am even trembling here on this stage a little bit. I speak a lot and I teach a lot. And this is scary for me to be up at a pulpit because one of you might come up to me after and say, you know what, maybe actually that's wrong what you just did because I don't want to dishonor God in any way. At Fuller Seminary, I had a professor, the late David Scholler, who taught about women in ministry, a white man who said, I will absolutely use my scholarly power to advocate for these issues. And one of the things he taught us that had stayed with me was this idea that in Genesis, in the fall of sin coming into the world, there was three things that happened. There was pain in childbirth, and you're going to have trouble getting your food, the There will be thistles and thorns in the ground, and it will be hard. And women will be ruled over by men. And this is the result of sin. And he said, this was not how it was supposed to be. We don't make childbirth harder. We don't add thistles to the ground to make it more difficult. This is the result of sin. And God's grace has given us tools to overcome that pain and to make farming easier. Why do we hold on to this idea that men are to rule over women? And that's what the Bible says. That is not what God commanded. It is the result of sin. And there's many other stories in the Bible we can look at, at the Facebook page of um, Bethany. Richard speaks to them because there's many, and I don't have time to speak to all of them. But that transformed my view. I do have a voice. Whether Aaron McMurray told me I had a voice or these men said I don't have a voice, The Holy Spirit has told me, you have a voice. And through humility and obedience, I seek to live into that call in any way that I can. And as a church, I would hope, Bethany has a ways to go. I've even been silenced here. And we have a ways, and I don't carry that with bitterness. I say I'm part of the mission to advocate for people who don't have a voice in many ways. And for all of us, I would hope, if you've been discriminated against in any way, that you would have hope that you do have a place to have a voice. And if maybe we have had it wrong as a man or a woman and told a woman to be silent where she had the authority to speak, may we repent of that and move on towards this goodness that Scott is speaking about now of reform to this issue of women being the voice of God. She's the gifted one. <laughs> just want to close this with just a quick look of what happens here. Josiah hears, they discover the Bible. The, 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 the repentance wasn't any kind of capitulation to culture. It was from the scriptures. We've, we've drifted, said Josiah. And then this woman speaks. They tear their robes. And then they get renewed. Because when God gives us a vision for, for his word becoming center of our lives, he wants to renew us. He doesn't want us to be stuck in shame. So 
But we ask this question of how do we live the best life? How do we flourish? Josiah became one of the best leaders. He was renewed. If you look at Second uh, Kings 23, verse 22 through 25, Josiah goes on this, on this campaign of putting God back in the center of their society, of putting God's word back in the center. They celebrate Passover in a way that had not been celebrated before. Then look at verse 24. Furthermore, Josiah got rid of the mediums and spiritists, the household gods, the idols, and all the other detestable things seen in Judah and Jerusalem. This was the, the decades and decades of drifting. Josiah said, we're done. We're done drifting. We're putting God back in the center. And he did this to fulfill the requirements of law written in the book that the Hikiah the priest had discovered in the temple of the Lord. Neither before nor after Josiah was there a king like him who turned to the Lord as he did with all his heart, all his soul, all his strength in accordance with the law of Moses. Josiah becomes one of God's best when he puts God back in the center of their worship. And you have to see all of 2 Kings 23. You can read it on your own. But when we want to be renewed in God, there's two components. And Josiah did this. Josiah removed the negative and he restored the positive. He, he, he removed the negative influence in his life and he restored the positive. And when we need to be renewed by Christ, it should involve both repenting for places we drifted. I'm not going to do this stuff anymore. Wanting more of God's revelation, I want more of this stuff in my life. And when we just try to add more without repenting for the ways we've drifted, we'll miss it. And when we just try to repent and stay in this negative cycle, we'll miss more scripture, more worship, more confession, more spirit. This is where God wants us to live as his people flourishing. We, we were called to remove the negative and restore the positive. And I have a question for you, church. Where do you need to bring your life back into alignment with God as the center of your universe? What, what, what is God asking you to think about and to repent and to experience this reform and listen to men and women teaching God's word and be renewed with worship of him being the center point of your life? We're called to not drift anymore. We're called not to drift anymore. There's two points here that we just need to end with. The first point, worship of God requires obedience to him as the center point. And when we drift, we repent and get back to loving him. 2 Corinthians 10 says this, We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. We take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. And so when we drift, we repent and get back. That is a big takeaway from this text. And secondly, God uses men and women for his revival. God uses men and women to, for his gospel. Acts 2, as the church was blowing up in Acts, Luke writes this, In the last day, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my ser servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Like this is what it's about, salvation, taking men and women to being fully aligned by the scriptures, that we would be more aligned to his glory in our lives. We have some work to do. There's this writer, Felicity Dale, who talked about going to South Korea to study the explosive nature of the church in Korea. Where the church is growing right now in the world is in Africa, is in Asia, is in the third world. The, ch the Christian church is on fire in places of Korea. It's incredible. 
And so some American church leaders went to just see what was going on in the biggest church in the world. Over 90,000 people. The church now numbers more than 700,000 people in church. How would that be a vision? If we had 700,000 people at Bethany North, we're going to need a bigger school to meet in. All right? We're going to need a couple of schools. But what if all of Seattle came to know Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior? So they're walking around saying, man, something's going on in Korea. And this assistant walks up and says, would you like to meet the pastor? They never dreamt they would meet the pastor because he's kind of a big deal, I guess. You know? So they get ushered in and they, they meet the pastor. And, and the pastor, he has Dr. Cho. He's talking about the power of prayer. He's talking about the power of the Spirit. He's talking about the Scriptures. He says, these are the pillars of revival. But then he just drops this on him. He says, you in the West will never see a move of God until you empower your women. And this couple was like, well, we weren't even asking about that. And Dr. Cho just says, this is what's happened in Korea. You in the West will never see it until you empower your women. And in Korea, the pastor, Dr. Cho, the church started in his mother-in-law's house and then it grew and it grew and it grew and he was doing more and more and God gave him a word, release the women, release them and release the men too. We all need to be on mission for God in our community. And so this church is in South Korea that's now more than 700,000 people. Two-thirds of their associate pastors are women and 47,000 of their small group leaders are women too. That's a picture of the kingdom of God, men and women bringing people into alignment with God's word through confession and prayer. Like that's what we're hungry for, an encounter with God, releasing the women, releasing the men. And so this morning what we want to do is we want to just take a moment here before we go back into song to realign our picture with God at the center of our life and see places in prayer and confession where we've drifted a little bit. And don't worry, we're going to just sit in our own seats. We're not going to share, we're not going to write, we're not going to move, we're not going to, no, we're just going to have a time of response of just praying silently. And I'm going to ask you here, I believe we have a slide, I just want you to silently where you sit, pray to the God who hears you, confess where you've missed God's best. Confess where you've missed the opportunity to learn from women. Confess places where you're holding a grudge from something that someone has spoken to you and you're not speaking out. Confess it. And then request God's forgiveness and then experience from that place the forgiveness and reconciliation of Jesus Christ who longs to release you into the world. And so I'm going to pray, and then the band will play, and we're just going to take a couple moments to to pray silently in our chairs, and then we'll continue in song. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we pray now as we turn towards a time of confession and repentance that we would ask this question, each one of us in our hearts, where have we been missing you, God? And where might we encounter you again? Lord, we, we want to come to you as sons and daughters wanting more of your revelation in our life. And so we confess sin that's been hanging around high places that need to be torn down. Lord God, would you hear our confession? Would would you receive our request to be forgiven? And Lord, would you reconcile us and renew us in the power of your Holy Spirit? And all God's people said, amen. Will you now close your eyes, church? And... There will be no movement of God until we release you, men and women, to worship God. And so in the silence of your own chair, I would want to encourage you now to confess and to request forgiveness and to experience God's forgiveness from that place. Let's pray silently where we sit.